The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Thirty-six-year-old Joan Rogers and her two daughters, Michelle and Christy, were heading back to their home state of Ohio after having the time of their lives on their first family vacation in Florida together, but they never made it home. Join me now as we take a look at the mysterious disappearance and murder of the Rogers family. You'll learn how investigators used billboards, TV shows, and newspapers to track down a man they suspected was a serial killer. And when the dust finally settled, they discovered to their horror they'd been right all along. In the life of a dairy farmer, there is one constant. It doesn't matter what else is going on anywhere in the world. One thing never changes. The cows need to be milked. Every day, 365 days a year, Christmas morning, birth of a child, the cows still need to be milked. It's a blessing and a curse, a ball and chain that ties farmers to their land, their cattle, and their livelihoods. And for Hal Rogers in Wilshire, Ohio, it was life. Morning milking started at 5.30 a.m. And after milking, an endless list of chores. Feeding, planting, harvesting, fixing this, repairing that. What other profession requires a person to wear so many different hats? On any given day, a dairy farmer needs to be a carpenter, mechanic, veterinarian, welder, nutritionist, or an accountant. But no matter what hat they're wearing, on any given day, they're almost always in their barn clothes. On June 4, 1989, Hal slipped on his gum boots at 3 in the afternoon and headed out to the milking parlor. This week had been especially hard for Hal because he was short-handed without his best help. His wife Joan, or Joe as everyone called her, and his two daughters, 17-year-old Michelle and 14-year-old Christy. Usually, Michelle and Christy would be up at the crack of dawn to help their dad. Joe would return from her midnight shift at a distribution warehouse just in time to help finish milking. It was a family farm in every sense of the term. Everybody pitched in, but this week had been different. For the first time in their entire lives, the Rogers family had taken a vacation. On May 26, Joe and the girls had hopped into their 1986 Sky Blue Oldsmobile and drove a thousand miles down I-75 to beautiful sunny Florida. Although it was meant to be a family vacation, the cow still needed to be milked, and so Hal stayed behind. He knew better than anyone that no one needed or deserved a vacation more than their family. 
As Hal milked the cows on the afternoon of June 4th, he kept checking the driveway to see if Joe and the girls had arrived home yet. They were supposed to be back that day. Michelle's boyfriend had called several times already, asking if Michelle was home yet. But each time, Hal told Jeff the same thing he was telling himself. Not yet, but they'll be back soon. But as day turned to night, Joe and the girls still hadn't arrived back home. As evening fell on the flat expanses of western Ohio, lightning bugs danced through the fields and trees, marking the end of spring and the promise of a new summer. But the only lights Hal wanted to see were a pair of headlights coming up the driveway. As he continued to wait for them, he felt something stirring in the pit of his stomach. But it wasn't just worry, it was longing. He simply missed his wife and children. Christina Crane, former longtime popular co-host of Sarasota, Florida's WSRZ morning show, Jones and Crane, remembers vividly when the case first hit the news. I remember so clearly the first time I was driving to work on the way to the radio station and seeing this huge billboard with a handwriting sample and a phone number to call with tips. And I had never seen a tactic like that taken before. And it really showed us how desperate the authorities were to find the killer and really how little evidence they had at that time. It was a very interesting and novel approach by the authorities, and I followed it until they had an arrest. It was successful. Christina joins us in our journey as we uncover what happened to Joe Rogers and the girls on their vacation to Florida and why they never returned. That same morning, a thousand miles away in Tampa Bay, Florida, it was already 80 degrees by the time Hal Rogers finished the morning milking. Conditions on the bay that morning were ideal for pleasure sailing, with winds blowing about eight knots. It's enough wind to fill your sails, but light enough to relax. And the relaxing morning on the bay, however, was soon interrupted, but not by the weather. Almost every boat on the ocean monitors Channel 16 on their VHF radios. It's the channel designated for Coast Guard communications, distress signals, and emergency alerts. At 9.20 a.m., every boater with their radio turned up would have heard the call. There was a body floating in the water. The alert came from a sailboat named Amber Wave as it cruised the waters near Piney Point on the southeastern side of the bay. The man who made the call didn't mince words with the Coast Guard. He said loud and clear over the radio, it looks like murder. As soon as the Coast Guard arrived, they realized just how accurate Amber Wave's assessment had been. This was murder, no question about it. What they discovered was the body of a woman floating in the water. She was nude from the waist down, her hands and feet were bound with rope, her mouth was duct taped, and there was a rope around her neck still tied to some weight below the surface like an anchor. It turned out to be a 35-pound cinder block. Ten minutes later, Channel 16 lit up again with more radio chatter. Just five miles away, there was another body in the water. She'd been tied up, weighed down, duct taped, and found nude from the waist down, just like the first. But the nightmare morning wasn't over. Before the Coast Guard had even pulled the second victim from the water, a third body was discovered by yet another boat. There was no doubt that this was murder. Three women, all in the exact same condition, all thrown into the ocean with a cinder block tied to their necks. But who were they? Police were at a complete loss. 
No identification was discovered on the bodies. No one had reported three women missing, and no matches were discovered using their fingerprints. Based on the condition of the bodies, investigators concluded the murder had taken place two or maybe three days earlier. And because they'd been exposed to the water and the elements for so long, even their ages were impossible to pinpoint, with initial reports incorrectly concluding the three women were all between 20 and 30 years old. The exact cause of death was also unknown, whether by drowning or strangulation. Asphyxia was listed as the official determination, but upon close inspection, it appeared that the second victim had been able to free one of her hands from the bindings and pull down the duct tape from her mouth. Although it was almost too horrifying to imagine, all signs pointed to the probability that the women had been thrown overboard alive, bound and weighed down with cinder blocks. Who were these women? Who murdered them? And why? The answers to those questions would not come all at once, and the search for them would consume the lives of detectives for longer than anyone imagined at the time. The day after the bodies were discovered, it was front-page news in all the Tampa Bay papers. Up in Ohio, however, Hal Rogers went about his day feeding, milking, choring, and constantly checking the driveway for Joe, Michelle, and Christy. It was now Monday. Michelle was supposed to start summer school, and Joe was scheduled to be back at work that evening. Tuesday came and went without any sign of them, and on Wednesday... Hal decided to call the Ohio State Highway Patrol to report his family missing. On Thursday, Hal's worst fears came true when the sheriff, a high school friend of his, broke the news. Police down in Florida suspected that his family had been murdered. Three days before the bodies were discovered in the bay, Joe and the girls had checked into the Days Inn at Rocky Point on June 1st. After a week, it became obvious to the housekeeping crew that no one had been using room 251, even though all their personal belongings were still in the room. Making the connection to recent headlines in the news, the hotel alerted police, and almost immediately, fingerprints from the hotel were matched to those of the victims. The following day, Hal Rogers received official verification. His family was never coming home. Down in Florida, there were no signs of foul play in the Rogers Hotel room, only the personal belongings of a family that had clearly intended on coming back to the room that day. And even though detectives now knew the identities of the victims, their work on the case was just beginning. Things got off to a promising start when their sky-blue 1986 Oldsmobile was located on the same day the bodies were identified. It was found parked at a boat ramp three miles west of the hotel. A toy dairy cow was still clung to the inside of the rear windshield. And inside, they found maps and travel brochures, candy wrappers and puzzle books, Uno cards and even loose change. Nothing out of the ordinary. On a piece of days and stationery, police discovered Joe's handwritten directions from the hotel to the boat ramp. And next to the directions, she had added the phrase blue with white. Had the Rogers family come to the ramp looking for a blue and white boat? Had they met someone who offered them a ride? The only other notable discovery was a travel brochure with handwritten directions to their hotel. It was notable because the handwriting was distinctly different from Joe's. 
Someone else had clearly written them, but who? Michelle? Christy? A helpful stranger? At the time, it didn't seem like a major clue. Certainly not one that deserved any more attention than the others. In the car, the note, and the brochure were filed away into evidence, along with everything else. And without any solid leads in the case, detectives followed the first rule in homicide investigations. Start with those closest to the victims. When they began looking into the Rogers family history, what they discovered was beyond shocking. Hal Rogers didn't become a farmer. He'd always been a farmer. It's what his parents and grandparents had done on the same fertile soil of Western Ohio. He married Joe, his high school sweetheart, in 1971. While Hal was quiet, measured and reserved, Joe was boisterous and fun, and according to Hal, she could work him under the table. It wasn't long before the hardworking family grew. Their first daughter, Michelle, was born in 1972, and Christy arrived in 1974. In 1980, Hal's brother John was discharged from the Marines and returned to his roots in Van Wert County. Hal agreed to let John buy a 50-50 stake in the family farm, and the money that John invested allowed Hal to purchase his first herd of dairy cattle. For his part, John moved into a trailer not far from Hal and Joe's double-wide trailer and worked hand-in-hand -hand alongside his brother. As Michelle grew into her teen years, her resemblance to her mother was uncanny, but it was obvious to everyone she inherited her father's personality. Quiet, reserved, even bordering on stoic at times. Christy was the exact opposite. She was loud, exuberant, and full of boundless energy. Her outgoing personality made her popular at school, and the stark differences between the sisters was a constant source of sibling rivalry. Another source of tension on the farm was between Michelle and John. She clearly loathed working beside her uncle and would become noticeably irritable whenever he was near her. Everybody saw it, but the behavior was chalked up to personality differences. The terrible reality, however, would be revealed in March 1988 when police cruisers pulled up to the Rogers farm. An 18-year-old woman was accusing John of raping her. When officers searched John's trailer, they discovered a briefcase full of evidence of his actions. There were videotapes, audio cassettes, and photos of a woman nude, blindfolded and handcuffed, exactly as the woman had described. But on closer inspection, the officers later realized that the woman in the photos wasn't the same woman in the video. It was a different woman, a younger woman. It was Michelle Rogers. Beginning when she was just 14, John had repeatedly raped his niece over a period of two years. Even when police told Hal and Joe the terrible news, Michelle refused to discuss the matter with anyone except the police. Astonishingly, John and Hal's parents sided with John and accused Michelle of lying, despite the incontrovertible proof that was in the briefcase. Hal, on the other hand, believed his daughter and promised her that John would never step foot on their property again. He also promised never to let him come close to Michelle again either. And with that promise, he began legally dissolving John's partnership in the farm. In April 1989, a plea deal was struck between the courts and John Rogers. He pled no contest to the original rape charge, 
sparing Michelle the trauma of testifying, and he was given a sentence of 7 to 25 years. As soon as John was sent away to prison, Joe, Michelle, and Christy began making plans to take their vacation to Florida, a road trip that would hopefully help put the entire ordeal behind them. No one needed or deserved a vacation more than the Rogers family, but despite everything they'd been through as a family, work still had to get done, and Hal stayed behind. Where there's smoke, there's often fire. So when Florida detectives learned about the Rogers family history, their natural instinct was that someone close to the family may have been responsible for the murders. And the obvious place to begin was with John. Even police in Ohio had their suspicions, calling the state prison to double-check that John hadn't escaped somehow. But he was still there behind bars. One hypothesis was that John had wanted revenge against Michelle for talking to police. The possibility that John had orchestrated the murders from prison was thoroughly explored. And it was an idea that seemed promising at first. But when they looked closer, they discovered that John was a complete loner in prison hardly any friends or connections on the inside or on the outside. They concluded he simply didn't have the means to organize a hit from his cell. In the midst of investigating John, detectives also couldn't help but overhear dark rumors flying around the small farm town. It was almost always spoken in whispers, but many people were wondering the same thing. Did Hal have something to do with this? He just seemed too unemotional. He hadn't cried at the funeral. He'd posted bail for John after he'd been accused of raping Michelle. And make no mistake about it, the matter of the bail money did seem like a red flag. After John's arrest, Hal promised his brother he'd post bail. But this promise had been made before anyone realized that Michelle had also been a victim. And though this is hard for many people to believe or even understand, for Hal Rogers, a promise is a promise no matter what. So even after he learned the full extent of his brother's crimes, Hal still posted the bail money. He'd already given his word. It was as simple as that. After intensely investigating every possible lead in Ohio, detectives eventually concluded that whoever the killer was, they weren't going to find him there. Hal and John were both crossed off the list as possible suspects. The investigation in Ohio had come to a dead end. Back in Florida, the trail was growing just as cold. Weeks and months passed without any major advancements in the case, despite police dedicating massive amounts of resources to solving it. After three months, the special task force that had been created by the St. Petersburg Police Department to work the case was dissolved, and the detectives were assigned to other cases. The Rogers family murders seemed destined to end up in a box somewhere, collecting dust just another case to add to the ever-growing list of unsolved crimes that summer. But it was one of those other unsolved crimes that made its way onto the desk of a detective who'd worked on the Rogers case. About three weeks before the bodies were discovered in the bay, another woman had been raped at sea off the coast of nearby Madeira Beach by an unidentified man who'd offered to take her on a boat ride. The victim was a tourist. She'd been stripped from the waist down, the color of the man's boat, blue and white. The similarities between the cases were too much to ignore. And the possibility of solving two cases at once reignited the investigation into the Rogers murders. But in order to follow up on the lead, detectives would have to travel north again, flying right past Ohio 
and up into Canada. Acting on a hunch that the two cases were related, police traveled to Ontario to interview the Madeira Beach rape victim, a 24-year-old Canadian woman named Judy. Judy and her friend Barbara had gone down to Florida for vacation. One night, while grabbing some snacks at a convenience store, they met a man who offered to take the two of them out for a boat ride the next day. Although Judy was excited by the opportunity, to Barbara, something seemed off about the man who'd introduced himself as Dave Posner. So the next day when Judy met Dave for the boat ride, Barbara stayed back at the hotel. The fact that Barbara didn't join them seemed to disappoint Dave, but he took Judy out on the water, giving her a tour of the bay and surrounding ocean for nearly six hours. After the trip, he invited Judy to come back out on his boat after dinner and watch the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico from his boat. Again, he asked Judy to invite Barbara along. Judy took him up on his offer, but Barbara still refused. This time, Dave was visibly upset that Barbara hadn't joined them. Not to be dismayed, they shoved off the dock and headed out to sea. But this sunset cruise wouldn't be anything like the first. As they got farther out to sea, Dave began making sexual advances toward Judy, advances that were unwelcome, unexpected, and rejected. As she attempted to resist, it became clear Dave was going to rape her. She screamed, but no one heard. They were all alone at sea. Dave showed her a roll of duct tape and threatened to tape her mouth if she didn't stop screaming. Then Dave asked her a horrible question. Is sex worth losing your life over? After committing the rape, Dave brought Judy back to a remote stretch of beach and told her to get out before throttling up and heading out back to sea. 24 hours later, Judy told Barbara what had happened, and together they went to police and reported the rape. If the Madeira Beach rape and the Rogers murders were indeed linked, this meant they were dealing with a man who wasn't afraid to attack multiple people at a time. As it seemed, Dave's original plan had been to assault both Judy and Barbara. Detectives quickly connected the dots and came to the horrifying realization. First-time killers don't usually kill multiple victims, let alone three at once, like the Rogers. There was every chance that their perpetrator had killed before and would kill again. They just might be looking for a serial killer. Before leaving Canada, detectives asked Judy and Barbara to sit with an artist to create a composite sketch of the rapist. The Canadian's composite sketch hit newspapers around Tampa Bay in November 1989. A mere 10-minute drive away from the Days Inn at Rocky Point, a woman named Joanne Steffi sat in her home reading the newspaper. She saw the sketch and thought it looked exactly like one of her neighbors. She clipped the sketch out of the paper and hung it on a refrigerator. Just a few doors down from Joanne, 43-year-old Opa Chandler had also recognized the face in the composite sketch. It was like he was looking in a mirror. For the first time since he'd raped and killed Joanne Michelle and Christy Rogers, he was worried he might get caught. Opa Chandler was born in 1946 in Cincinnati, Ohio. And when he was just 10 years old, his father, Oba Sr., hanged himself in the basement of the family home. Tragically, it seemed to run in the family. 
two of Oba Sr.'s siblings, a brother and a sister, had also previously committed suicide. There's a story that is often told about Oba at his father's funeral. According to some family members, as the dirt was being shoveled onto the casket, 10-year-old Oba jumped into the hole, angrily stomping down each fresh new shovelful. Although this story is most likely apocryphal, there can be no doubt that the childhood trauma of his father's suicide played a role in creating the violent criminal he'd soon become. Oba dropped out of school in the eighth grade, and by the time he turned 18, Oba had been arrested over 20 times for various thefts and petty crimes. And in addition to his life of crime, he'd also begun to establish another lifelong pattern, picking up women, treating them like trash, and discarding them quickly. Over the years, Oba accumulated a string of marriages, divorces, annulments, girlfriends, and children he never intended to raise. He sired at least eight children to seven different women that we know about. Throughout his 20s, Oba was arrested numerous times for crimes ranging from theft to being caught as a peeping Tom and even doing a short stint in prison for stealing wigs. In 1976, he was sent to prison in Florida for armed robbery, but he quickly escaped from prison by simply walking away from a work detail outside the prison walls. It wasn't until he was caught in 1982 with $8,000 in counterfeit bills that he was again sent back to prison until 1986. This was the same year Oba's first child, a daughter named Crystal, whom Oba had fathered when he was just 17, became curious about finding her biological father. Her mother had steadfastly refused to ever tell Crystal or her sister Valerie anything about the man who fathered them. But using a private investigator, Crystal learned Oba's identity and began to get to know her father soon after his release. And over the years, they formed a loose but friendly relationship. In November of 1989, when Oba's composite sketch was printed in the newspapers, he skipped town and drove the thousand miles north on I-75 to Sharonville, Ohio, just north of Cincinnati, where Crystal and her husband Rick lived. They met Oba at a motel room where he was obviously hiding out. They'd never seen him so distressed or disheveled. As he chain-smoked cigarettes, he began ranting, and in the middle of his ranting, he confessed to both the Madeira Beach rape and the murder of the Rogers family. At the time, Crystal and Rick weren't entirely certain they believed him. Oba returned to Florida after Thanksgiving 1989, where he resumed working his job as an aluminum contractor. On June 5, 1990, almost exactly one year after the Rogers murders, he built a porch for one of his neighbors, Moselle Smith. She had him draw up a handwritten contract for the work. Moselle and Oba's other neighbor, Joanne Steffi, finally worked up the courage to tell police about her suspicions that Oba was the killer they were looking for. When she never heard anything more about her tip, she naturally assumed Oba had been looked into and crossed off the list of suspects. She had no way of knowing that her tip had been either ignored, lost, or forgotten. Either way, it was never investigated. By the summer of 1990, a year after the murders, a new detective was assigned to lead the investigation, Glenn Moore. With fresh eyes, Glenn and his team began poring over the details of the case, re-examining every single piece of evidence. He knew something somewhere had to have been overlooked, 
They just needed to find it. They worked the case around the clock, day after day, month after month, to the point of obsession. And then, in the early hours of November 27, 1990, 200 miles away in Fort Lauderdale, the body of 20-year-old Ivelisse Berrios Begaris was found naked in a quiet residential area. An autopsy revealed ligature marks on her wrist and ankles. The cause of death was asphyxia. And just like the Rogers family murders, there was no great suspects or leads, and the rape and murder of Ivelisse went unsolved. With unsolved cases like these piling up around the state, the clock was ticking for Glenn Moore and his team to catch the killer. Eventually, they'd either have to solve the Rogers case or move on. Acting on advice from the FBI, Glenn decided to involve the media in the investigation. Holding press conferences, he began releasing facts and pieces of evidence for the public to see. Even the TV show Unsolved Mysteries was invited to cover the case, and it went to air in the fall of 1991. By the time the show reared in March of 92, there was a stack of more than 1,500 tips that had been called in from the show. Fully investigating every tip was simply an impossible task. Instead, police had to decide for themselves which one seemed the most urgent or legit, essentially performing detective triage on every stack of leads. As the third anniversary of the Rogers murders drew near in the spring of 92, Glenn Moore decided to throw a Hail Mary. While digging through all the old evidence, his team came across the brochure that had been found in the Rogers car, the one with the handwritten directions to their hotel. After confirming the handwriting didn't belong to Joe or the girls, they acted on the assumption that whoever had written the directions was most likely the killer they were looking for. On May 14, 1992, a sample of the handwriting was published in the newspapers. Glenn Moore publicly stated that this was their last and best chance at catching the killer. Joanne Steffi could hardly believe her eyes. After seeing the handwriting sample in the newspaper, she and Moselle Smith compared that sample to the handwritten contract Oba had given Moselle when he built her porch. It was a match. There was no question about it. They called the tip line from the newspaper and faxed over Oba's contract as a sample. They knew they'd identified the killer. But then, nothing happened. Over the weeks and months, Joanne and Moselle's daughter Dale kept calling in to check on her lead. But each time they did, they were told there was a massive backlog of tips. There were literally hundreds of handwriting samples that had been sent in. Each one from a caller equally convinced that they knew who the real killer was. But on July 30th, 1992, Joanne saw something that made her absolutely livid. It was a giant billboard alongside the road. On it was a massive photo of the same handwriting sample that had been printed in the newspaper. The billboard begged for anyone who could identify the writing to call the police. Ten of these billboards had been erected around the city. She called again and asked, what are you people doing over there? Moselle's daughter, Dale, again faxed over the handwritten contract and included a scathing cover letter questioning why their lead hadn't been followed up on. It was enough. Joanne and her friends had finally cut through the noise and their lead shot to the top of the triage list. 
When detectives finally looked at the handwriting from the contract, it was unmistakably a match. They were absolutely certain that Oba Chandler, at the very least, had given the Rogers family directions. For the first time, Glenn Moore had a primary suspect. Once they knew Oba's name and were able to match him to a palm print discovered on the brochure, and when they saw his unbelievably long rap sheet, they became even more convinced he might just be their killer. But the real breakthrough came when a member of the team named Marilyn Johnson realized Oba Chandler looked exactly like the composite sketch created by the Canadians way back in 1989. It had to be. After detectives flew out to Canada, Judy and Barbara were shown a lineup of photos. Both picked out Oba Chandler as the man who'd introduced himself as Dave Posner. With their positive ID, police were able to arrest Oba for the Madeira beach rape in September of 1992. With Oba sitting in jail, detectives now had time to begin building the murder case against him. After two long years of delays, Oba finally went to trial for the triple homicide of Joe, Michelle, and Christy Rogers. Despite years and years of preparation, the prosecution still knew they were fighting an uphill battle. In fact, no one was entirely confident they were going to be able to convict him. They could prove that Oba had written the directions on the brochure and that he had a blue and white boat. They could even prove, by using radio call records, that he'd been out on the water when the murders took place. But outside these basic facts, almost every other piece of evidence tying him to the Rogers murders was entirely circumstantial. Everything would have to go just perfectly to convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that Oba wasn't just some unlucky victim of a series of horrible coincidences. Fortunately for the prosecution, Oba Chandler was brazen enough to take the stand in his own defense. And the man who cross-examined him was determined to break him. State's attorney Doug Crow had been there on the day the Rogers' bodies were carried ashore in body bags. For him, this case had become personal, and he was determined to send the man sitting in front of him to death row. During a heated cross-examination fit for a Hollywood movie, Doug Crow attacked Oba's testimony, asking pointed questions and poking holes in his made-up alibi. Oba claimed that he'd been out fishing by himself on the night of the Rogers murders. Under the strain of questioning, however, Oba was caught in a string of lies that were obvious to everyone in the courtroom, and most importantly, the jury. At one point, Oba even complained to the judge that Doug was getting under his skin. When the jury was sent off to deliberate, all 12 jurors agreed he was guilty within five minutes. After watching Oba on the stand, not a single one of them had any doubt. And once the guilty verdict was handed down, the only question remaining was whether or not he'd received the death penalty. At Oba's sentencing, the prosecutor made his case for the death penalty by reminding the court just how depraved Oba's crimes had been. He stated he couldn't throw them over the side all at the same time. He had to throw them over the side one at a time. That means he threw one over the side. Which one? We don't know, but somebody was first. Was it the mother, the daughter, the sister? The other two watched. Their eyes weren't taped and they heard, their ears weren't taped, and they smelled, their noses weren't taped, and at that point, they knew they'd be next. 
Nothing could be more horrendous, more atrocious, more cruel and unmitigated than that. He deserves to pay the ultimate price. After only 30 minutes of deliberation, the jury agreed, and Oba Chandler was sentenced to death. During his 17 years on death row, not a single visitor ever came to see him in prison, and on November 15, 2011, Oba's execution was carried out. Leading up to his execution, Hal Rogers wasn't sure if he'd attend. According to the Tampa Bay Times, Hal didn't talk anymore about seeing Opa Chandler strapped into the electric chair and flipping the switch himself. When he learned Florida no longer uses the electric chair and that Oba would die by the needle, Hal's reaction was, Son of a bitch, I'll be doggone. In the end, Hal decided to attend Oba's execution, while Oba restricted his family from attending. Right up to the end, Oba continued to claim he was innocent, writing a note in his cell before his execution that said, You are killing an innocent man today. If a person proclaims their innocence right up until their execution, it's perfectly natural to at least ask the question, Is it possible he was telling the truth? But any doubts as to Oba's guilt were officially put to rest in 2014, nearly three years after his death. A team of cold case detectives were assigned to the case of Ivelisse Berrios Begaris from Fort Lauderdale in 1990. Using DNA technology that wasn't available at the time, they were now able to conclusively prove that Oba Chandler was the murderer. So far, no other murderers have been linked to Oba Chandler. But for many, they believe it's just a matter of time before more victims are discovered. Up in Ohio, Hal Rogers still struggles to deal with what happened to his family. Some days are better than others. He misses his wife and children. The last thing Joe ever wrote to Hal was a postcard sent from Florida. She ended the happy note with the words, Love ya. Take care. Don't work too hard. It took him many years to take her advice, but eventually he moved on from dairy farming to racing hogs and gross corn, a style of farming that isn't quite the same ball and chain. Around 2001, Hal eventually decided he wanted companionship again and put an ad in the paper. That's how he met Jolene, a widow who understands the feeling of loss, and together they help each other heal and move on. I'd like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Taylor R., Maya N., Julie A., Crystal, Carissa, Dave T., Kansas P., May N., Kristen M., Charlie B., Jared T., Heidi, Lindsay L., Shannon C., Carrie R., Amy C., Claire B., and Don B. And now I'd like to introduce you to the podcast, History Daily, 
Hi, I'm Lindsey Graham, and no, not that Lindsey Graham, but host of the podcasts American History Tellers and American Scandal. On those shows, we take a look back into history every week, but history happens every day. So on my newest podcast, History Daily, we do history daily. Every weekday, beginning November 1st, the same day President John Adams first moved into the White House, we'll bring you a slice of the history that happened that day from the tragic President Kennedy died at one central standard time to the triumphant at one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. So whether you're bored at work on May 1st, the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden or stuck in traffic on August 8th. Therefore... I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Remember that something incredible happened to make that day historic. Search for and subscribe to History Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Follow the Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. To listen to The Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows ad-free, Start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com slash madness.